Father, we ask once again that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, we might be changed. God, we come to this place today needing a word from you. We need a word of encouragement. Some of us need a word of rebuke. Some of us need a word of comfort. Some of us need hope. And I just pray, God, that wherever you find us today, that you might meet us there and take us to the place you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time today, we've been in a series over the last few months entitled Authentic Church, and we've been walking through a little letter that the Apostle John wrote to a church in Ephesus, and we've been talking together about the message of this little letter. Now, we jumped into this letter several months ago because we said we have entered into a new season as a church. And, you know, sometimes when you enter into new seasons, you know, we've got new bathrooms and a new children's wing, and we've got a new gathering space, and we are entering into a new season together. And sometimes it's important just to stand back and ask, what should we be about as a community? What are the core values that ought to shape and guide us as a church? Uh, what is a measuring stick whereby we could say, hey, are we healthy? Are we doing well? And at First John gives us the answer to that question. It shows us what we should be about. And so we've been walking through this uh, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse. And today we enter into the final chapter, and we're going to be uh, closing out the book today. And as we do so, I want to stand back and just kind of highlight uh, the core themes that John has been introducing to us throughout this book. Or I could just put it like this, you know, uh, we are in a culture right now where the church in America is being blown about by all kinds of different winds of progressive ideology and nationalism and right-wing politics and health and wealth and celebrity cultures and ideologies on the left and the right oftentimes co-opt the church. And the church gets on about the wrong kind of things. And so John helps bring clarity It breaks through all the cobwebs and the fog, and it says, here is what you are to be about. And again and again, John cycles through three core marks of an authentic church, three things that a church ought to be about, three core values that ought to shape the church. And uh, if we could summarize his message, it would be this. He says, look, what is an authentic church marked by, characterized by? Well, number one, John tells us a a genuine faith, a, a church that's being faithful, number one, will seek to embody the love of Jesus. We will seek to embody the love of Jesus. John tells us again and again to behold the love of God that love that sent the Son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, the love of the Son to give his life willingly and unreservedly for us. And he tells us again and again, if God so loved us this way, so too we ought to love one another. He says this is the core mark of a community of believers who are following the way of Jesus is we are marked preeminently by love. We seek to embody in our life together, in our words, in our deeds, and how we treat each other, how we care for each other, the love that Jesus has for us. So number one, 
a, a mark of an authentic church is that we embody the love of Jesus. But secondly, John is going to tell us throughout this letter that the second mark is that an authentic church seeks to practice the way of Jesus. Or as John put it back in chapter two, uh, we will learn to walk even as Jesus walked. And Jesus is clear what his ethics are. He has given us his way. He has given us guidance. He says, look, turn the other cheek. Uh, walk the extra mile. You know, don't objectify people of the opposite sex. You know, stay faithful to your commitments. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Take the log out of your own eye before you go examining the speck in your neighbor's eye. Trust God, don't worry. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and go to God with childlike faith and trust and ask. And Jesus gives us guidance on how to live. He gives us a wise way of being in this world. And John says what it means to be a faithful church means that we are seeking to walk in that way. We are seeking to be obedient and faithful to the way of Jesus, to the commands of Jesus. And so uh, number one, Mark, is we seek to embody the love of Jesus. Number two, we seek to practice the way of Jesus. But thirdly, John is gonna say a faithful church is centered in the person of Jesus. And we are trusting in the person and work of Jesus the eternal son who is eternally generated from the bosom of the father, the son who is with God and who was God and who became flesh and walked among us and in human flesh bore in his own body on the tree our own sin and shame and so defeated the power of sin and death and darkness. Here the light the eternal, the infinite light of God was breaking into the darkness. And John says, a true faithful church centers its life. It is founded upon and it's characterized by deep faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus. And in fact, as John opens chapter five, he ticks through each three of these core marks of the church. You know, he's been cycling through them throughout the letter. And at the end, he summarizes them in the first five verses of chapter five. And notice how he begins. He, he begins first by uh, saying that the, the, the community of believers, true followers of Jesus will embody the love of Jesus. Chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you hear that characteristic mark of love? And then he moves on to obedience of the way of Jesus, the commands of Jesus. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We don't view the way of Jesus as something that's a burden and a curse. You know, oh, I have to order my life according to the Sermon on the Mount. No, the Sermon on the Mount is the wisest, the best, the most fulsome and life-giving way of being in this world. And so those who walk in the way of Jesus are seeking to practice and obediently follow this way, and it's not burdensome. And then finally, it's marked by trust and faith in the person of Jesus. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? He says, our faith, our trust. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. And so do you see, as he opens chapter five, he goes through each one of these core marks of an authentic church. But listen, John is mainly writing, though, not simply to reinstill in us and kind of reset us and recenter us in the core marks of the church. He's writing because at a very practical level, there are people in his community who have veered off this path. And we could illustrate it like this. Many today are still veering off this path. He says, look, instead of embodying the love of Jesus, there are members in the community who have veered off that path and who have been overcome by various ways of hatred, maybe unforgiveness or bitterness or envy or jealousy, but it's causing them to harm their brother or their sister in Christ with their words, with their cold action. And he says, these things ought not to be. And so they veered off from love into the way of hate. And some have, rather than practicing the way of Jesus, have veered off into not living under the rule of Christ and his good way of being in this world, but rather living under the rule of their own autonomous, distorted, and destructive desires. I call the shots in my life. I do what I want to do. And John said they veered off the way. And so he's trying to corral these people and correct them and bring them back. And then thirdly, there are people who have veered off the path of sound faith in Jesus and into heresies. Uh, Some in John's community had denied even that God in Christ, or that God was in Christ manifesting the divine presence in the flesh of Jesus. And they had denied who Jesus was and they had distorted the person of Jesus and they had veered off into heresies and various ideologies and false teachings. And so John is writing because there's people who had been veering off the path, but listen, and this is, the, this is the truth, you know. Very often, the people who had veered off the path are people with names and faces who people in John's community knew. And it, it, it's almost always the case that there are people in our life, people who we love, that sometimes veer off the path. And so John is not simply writing a letter that is delivering theology and propositional truth. He's speaking to a community of people who have friends and loved ones who have veered away and they're deeply concerned about those who have veered away. And of course, you know what that's like, don't you? You've had people in your life who have veered away from love and into various ways of hatred, being overcome by their anger and their jealousies and their envy. And you and I have had people who have veered away from the path of Jesus and his good way of being into this world, and they have given over to destructive and addictive desires. And there are some who have, who have, who have wandered off the path of centering their life on the person of Jesus and have gone down the rabbit trail of bizarre conspiracy theories and being absorbed in, in, in all the political ideologies of our day and have moved away from the centrality of Jesus. And we're concerned about those people. Or we could put it simply like this. You might, you might have a sister or a brother that they have wandered away and they've been given over to something addictive and destructive in their life. 
or you've got parents that you're deeply concerned about because you see they're filled with anger and hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness towards each other and it's tearing them and you're deeply concerned about those parents and you're deeply concerned about a child that maybe is wandering from the faith or a grandchild that's wandering away and you're deeply concerned about those people. And so as John closes out the letter, he addresses that deep concern and he tells us what to do with it. And so as we close out the letter, I want you to observe what John tells us to do with our deep concern about those who have wandered from that path of love and the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus. You know, I think on the one hand, what I'm often tempted to do is to... um, move into one of two, I think, responses when I see people who are wandering away and getting themselves into stuff they shouldn't or caught up into destructive ways, or they're just maybe through various compromises, maybe through giving themselves over again and again to their own self-indulgence. They're just wandering away from faithfulness to Jesus. And when I see that, And when I see that in people I love, I can find myself in one of two responses. On the one hand, I can find myself moving into over-engagement. And what I mean by that is I want to control or manage or fix them. Anybody in the house want to control and manage or fix somebody you love? And, and, you know, and, and most of us have tried that. And how does that work out for you? It just doesn't work. Now, sometimes people will invite your voice into their life and they'll say, look, I really need your help and your direction and your wisdom. Help me out. And then you've got a voice. But until they invite you, if you come in as an uninvited voice, oftentimes you do more harm than good, Right. And so on the one hand, we can move off when we see somebody, we're like, oh no, what's happening to them? And they're going away and we want to go in and manage and fix and control or maybe guilt or shame them into, or do something to try to control their behavior. On the other hand, my other response is disengagement. Fine. You want to go that way? Fine. And I shut down my heart because it's just, so, it's just too painful to get vulnerable and to allow my heart to hope or to long for and have it keep getting stepped on. And so I'm just like, fine, you do you, you do your thing, and I shut down and I turn my heart away. And I wonder if you have found yourself either moving into over-engagement or disengagement when you see people wandering from the path of faithfulness to the love of Jesus and to the way of Jesus and to the person of Jesus. Well, John invites us not to over-engagement or to disengagement, but he invites us into a third way, which I'm labeling a spiritual engagement with God regarding the people around us and with ourselves regarding the people around us. And I want to invite you to consider what John says in these closing verses And notice, um, he he gives us really three marks of spiritual engagement. You know, we talked about three marks or character qualities of an authentic church. Well, these are three marks or three practices of spiritual engagement when we have people in our life who are going astray. Number one, John is going to invite us into the spiritual discipline of prayer. 
the spiritual discipline of prayer for those who are burdening our hearts and who are, we are concerned about. And listen how he puts it in verse 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You know, I think one of the most frustrating and painful things is when you feel like you haven't been heard. When you've got deep pain and you finally become vulnerable and you let it out, but they didn't listen and they just stepped on it or they just overreacted and you shut down again. Have you been there? Have you ever wondered, does God hear me? When I'm vulnerable with God, when I open up my heart to God, John says, this is the confidence that you can have. That if we ask anything according to his will, he does hear us. And his hearing is not an inactive or an indifferent hearing. It is a hearing that is compassionate. He says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. This is the confidence that you have. God hears you and God responds to your prayers that you pray according to his will. And you're like, well, what, what are those prayers according to his will? Well, John has something very specific in mind, which he leads us into the next verse. John is specifically thinking about praying for those who have wandered from the path. You know, he's been talking about these three marks. There's people wandering off. And he says, look, I want you to actively, spiritually engage on behalf of those who are wandering from the path. And when you do, you can have confidence that God will hear you. He says this, he puts it like this, he says, and so if anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Isn't that a beautiful promise? That when you see somebody wandering, you can ask and God will hear and give him life. And so here's your friend or a sister or a brother or a parent, and they're caught up in some destructive habit or some weird ideology, and they've wandered away from the person of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the way of Jesus. He says, pray for them. Make them a regular, a habitual subject of your prayers. Pray for those who are caught up in something. And he says, and God will hear and give him or her life. Some of you might know who Tony Campolo is. He is a very known, well-known speaker and um, writer. And he shares a story about a speaking engagement that he once had at a Pentecostal Bible college in Philadelphia. And before he spoke, they took him into the backstage to pray for him. And he said, these were Pentecostals. And so he said, they didn't just pray. They had to lay their hands on me and pray. And they didn't just lay their hands on me. They had to lay their hands on my bald head and pray over me. And he said, there were nine of them. And they prayed for a very, very long time. And he said, and on top of all of that, he says, there was this one guy who was laying his hands on his head. Who, and he says, he wasn't even praying for me. He said, he was praying for some guy named Charlie Stolzwitz. And he said, quote, he said, I, Lord, I pray for Charlie Stoltzfitz. You know Charlie, Lord, the guy who lives in that silver trailer down the road a mile. You know the trailer, Lord, the silver one, just on the right-hand side. And Tony said, I wanted to inform the prayer that it was not necessary to furnish God with directional material. <laughs> and he went on. Charlie told me this morning, Lord, that he was gonna leave his wife and three kids. Step in, do something, Lord. Bring that family back together. 
And uh, so they prayed for him and he said amen. And uh, Tony went out and spoke. And then after speaking, he got in his car and he hopped on the New Jersey Turnpike and he was heading to the airport. And he sees a hitchhiker on the side of the road and he pulls over and he, he you know, says, can I give you a lift? And he said, hi, I'm Tony, what's your name? And the man said, my name is Charlie Stoltzwitz. Tony said, I couldn't believe it. I got off the next exit and I drove back. The man was a little uneasy and after a few minutes he said, hey mister, where are you taking me? And Tony said, I'm taking you home. He narrowed his eyes and asked why. And I said, you just left your wife and three kids, right? Yeah, that's right. With shock on his face, he plastered himself against the door of his car. He said he couldn't take his eyes off me. And then he said, I really did him in. And when I drove him right to his silver trailer on the right-hand side, <laughs> and his eyes began to bulge, and he said, how did you know I live here? And he said, God told me. <laughs> he said, I believe God did tell me. And when he opened the trailer and said, he opened the trailer, and his wife said, you're back? And then he walked over and whispered in her ear. And the more he talked, the bigger her eyes got. And Tony said, the two of you sit down. And he said, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. And man, did they listen. <laughs> and he said, that afternoon, I led those two young people to Christ. You know, God hears and answers our prayers. Now, it's not always within some 24-hour period. And it's often not even within six months, sometimes with not even within six years, sometimes it's decades, where we keep praying for those who are caught up and they veered off the path. But John assures us you can have confidence, God hears you when you pray. And if he hears you, as you pray for those who are at the center of your heart's concern, he says, God hears and he responds to our prayers. God answers prayer. Now, John goes on and he says something a bit confusing. I don't know if you heard this when it was read, but we're gonna have to just jump into this for a minute because it's right here in the passage. But um, he gives a caveat when he talks about praying for those who have wandered off the way. And he says this, if anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But he says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. You're like, okay, clear. As <laughs> I get it. Let's go on. No, you're like, what are you talking about, John? What, what, do we, what is sin that leads to death? What are we even talking about? Well, one way of, uh, I think, addressing this is to, to, to ask, who are we called to pray for? Who is called to be in the circle of your concern when you pray. Well, of course, those dearest to you, your family, your church family, pray for those around you who are caught up in stuff. In another part of scripture, Paul says, God is not willing that any should perish, that, that God wills that all would come to him. So he says, pray for all people. And so our, our circle of concern ought to stretch outside of the church family to all people. And, and then even beyond that, Jesus teaches us that our circle of concern of our prayer should even be so generous and wide to encompass even our enemies, people who persecute us. He says, bless those who persecute you and pray for those who spitefully use you. 
And so the circle of our concern is really, really wide. But John says there's one, one person that stands outside of the circle of your concern. He says, you don't need to pray for them. And that's the person who is committing this sin that leads unto death. So you say, well, what is that? And to be quite honest with you, I don't exactly know. And I don't think most commentators know. There's all different kinds of options. Uh, But I'll just say, I think to answer that question, you have to look at the wider context of the book. And John speaks about particular false teachers who've come in who are leading the church off the path. And specifically those who are distorting the person of Jesus who he says are filled with the spirit of Antichrist. And I think these false teachers, maybe there are some that have crossed a line and maybe they have become sick as an act of judgment and they're on their way to death. And maybe what John is saying is something to the effect of, listen, they, they, they're, they're in a place that's dark and they need to be there because maybe that place, God can meet them and bring them to repentance. But maybe the gist of what he's saying is, you know, you've got a lot of stuff to occupy your heart and your concern, and you can just leave those people aside. Maybe he's saying that. But maybe not. Maybe you've got a different idea, but I think that's a pretty good way of reading the text. But John's point is not to tell us in this text who we shouldn't pray for. John is concerned with who we should pray for. And he's saying, look, bring within the circle of your prayers those who have wandered off. And when you do, when you bring those to God, even in the most, I mean, it is vulnerable to do that because you risk that God may not immediately answer that prayer tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. And so you open yourself up to being hurt by God and what seems like an, an, not an answer to that prayer. But John says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to you that you should be called the sons and daughters of God. You're a child of the Father and you can have access to God and have confidence that when you pray, God loves you and he loves you like you love your own children if you're a parent. And he he says he loves to give good gifts to his children. So bring those concerns to God and keep praying and keep asking and have confidence that God hears you. And so what do you do with these friends, these loved ones, these family members, these siblings, these parents, these children, grandchildren that have wandered far? He says, spiritually engage in the discipline of praying for them. But secondly, he says, not only engage in the spiritual discipline of prayer for those who are wandering, but he says, engage in that spiritual practice of trust and rest in the power of God to do what you cannot do. And what can you not do? You can't change people, can you? You know, you can't change your children. You know, you you can't change your parents. You can't fix their marriage. You know, you, you can't change your spouse. You know, you have a difficult time even changing your spouse's spouse, right? Right? But there is someone that can change them, and it's God. There's somebody that can keep them, and it's God. And look at how John puts it in the text. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He says, there is a power at work in that person's life that goes beyond your power, and God has the ability to keep them 
to prevent them from going on year after year, you know, decade after decade in this dark lifestyle that's destructive and hurting them, God can keep them. Anyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch them. And do you see what John is doing? He's giving us confidence. He's saying God has the power to protect. God has the power to keep those who have wandered off the path. You know that little passage in Luke's gospel where Jesus, right as he shares that last meal with his disciples, he says, all of you are gonna forsake me before this night ends. And Peter says, though all forsake me, uh, I will never forsake you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you are gonna deny me. And, and Jesus says, Satan has asked that he might sift you like wheat, but he says, I have prayed for you. And it's interesting to me that Jesus' prayer doesn't keep Peter from failure. It doesn't keep him from the pain of his failure, the consequences of his actions. It keeps him from ultimately being lost. And it keeps him in the midst of the failure in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of his pain of rejection of Jesus and all that that entailed for him. Jesus doesn't keep him from it, but he keeps him through it and he ultimately restores him back. And John, in essence, is saying, you can trust God with people you love. Now you say, well, don't they have a will of their own? Yes, they do. And they can fight with God. They can wrestle with God. And there's points where you just have to release it into the hands of God. But what John is saying is like, if people, if they've been met by Jesus and transformed by Jesus, Jesus can keep them and protect them and hold them and, and keep them from ultimately being lost to the evil one. But John doesn't minimize how dangerous the evil one is. Look at what he says next. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. John says, there are structures and systems in this world that are underneath forces that go way beyond human explanation. There are powers of darkness at work in this world. And I think when we see the world at its worst, you know, we would join Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who after looking at Nazi Germany square in the face, said, how can one close one's eyes to the, to the fact that the powers of darkness have taken over this world? And that here, the evil one has made a conspiracy against us. There is something dark, and John is saying the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. There is dark, enslaving, destructive powers at work in this world, and you just need to look at addictions wreak havoc on someone's life. You just need to look at, at unforgiveness and bitterness, overcome somebody and absolutely tear apart a home. You just need to see somebody overcome by lust and greed and see what it does to societies. John says the whole world lies underneath the power of the evil one. But the claim of the Christian faith is that there is a power that is stronger at work in this world than the power of the evil one. It is the power of the incarnate Son of God. And so John says, and we know that the Son of God has come. 
And he has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. Yes, the world is shrouded in darkness and in addictions and in pain and suffering and destructive patterns. But God in Christ has come into this world, a power stronger than all of that. And John tells us that he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to bear in his own body our sin and bring forgiveness. He came and ultimately brought to birth in the midst of this old world a new kingdom. That means that this old world that lies under the sway of the evil one is passing away. And so John says, there is a power at work in this world that's stronger than the power of the evil one. And you can trust God that his power is strong and at work in the lives of people around you. And that requires a spiritual discipline of trust and rest in the protective power and care and love of God. You know, I remember back when I was a high school pastor, uh, there was a young man in my youth ministry whose name was Stephen. And when he was in junior high school, uh, I started discipling him and would get together and lead a little small group with him. And uh, I taught him how to play guitar. I tried to teach him how to surf. It never stuck, unfortunately. Just one of my great failures of discipleship back in that. But, you know, Steve showed a lot of promise and he really loved the Lord and he was growing in his faith. But when he was in his junior and senior year of high school, as what happens with a lot of people as they get into those later teen years, he started to explore. And, you know, I overheard he had been going to some keg parties and I was just, I was concerned about him. And then when he became a senior in high school, he informed me that he was going off to UCSB. And so he was gonna go to what I understood at that time as one of the core party schools in California. And he was gonna immerse himself in a dorm life in Isla, in Isla Vista, you know, which is basically Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and, um, and I'm like, oh no, he's gonna be lost. You know, and he goes off to school and it's like he was outside of Mike. You know, when he was here, I could check in with him. I could try to control him and make sure, he, you know, and, and he goes off and he's outside. And, and the first year he was there, I didn't hear much from him. And I kind of got wind that he wasn't, you know, doing the best. And, you know, when he graduated UCSB, he was a leader in a crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And he called me and said, Josh, can I come and do an internship? I want to be a pastor. And to this day, he is one of my dearest friends, and he's one of the most faithful supports I have in ministry, and is a deep spiritual encouragement to me. And I didn't have anything to do with his faith being kept when he was at college. God did. And ultimately, we have to release people into the hands and into the care of God. We have to release them into the power of God. And listen, you just don't have any other option, do you? I mean, you've tried, and you know it just doesn't work. You know, our people we love are like a bar of soap, you know? If you squeeze it too tight in your hands, they just go further away from you, don't they? <laughs> you've got to hold it with care and openness, and the only way you can do that is by going regularly to God and releasing them into his care and into his love. So John invites us into the discipline of prayer into the discipline of trust, into the power of God. And then he closes off this letter strangely by turning us away from a discipline of prayer and a discipline of rest regarding those who have wandered off to a discipline of self-watch. 
Notice what he says. He, um, he closes out the letter. This verse, all the commentators note, it comes from out of left field. John's been going on in these circular things about love and obedience and faith and talking about people who've wandered off and, and now he's talking about how to you know, pray for them and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden he's just, boom, little children, keep yourself from idols. Mic drop. The sermon, you know, the letter ends. It's like, John, where did that come from all of a sudden? You know, John, what does me keeping myself from idols, I, I'm doing that, you know? I'm concerned about them. You know, they're getting caught up in the wrong things. They're wandering off the path. You know, I've got to pray for them. You know, all the people out there, John says, what about you? There's only one person you can keep from idolatry. And it's not your parents or your siblings or your friends or the person sitting next to you right now. It's not your children. It's, your, it's not your grandchildren. The person who you have a responsibility to keep from falling into idols that take you off the path is you. So John says, keep yourself from idols. Now, don't misunderstand. You say, well, I don't have, you know, <laughs> I know you travel to Indonesia or I don't know, um, Japan or something. You might go to temples where there's idols that people are bowing down or something. You're like, I don't, you know, I don't struggle with, you know, don't misunderstand. When the Bible speaks of idolatry, it's speaking about something that is so close to our house and to our lives and our hearts. He's talking about substituting anything for God. Taking the role that God alone should play in your life as your savior, the one who ultimately rescues you from pain and putting something else in that place. I go to pills, I go to shopping, I, I go to uh, alcohol in order to salve my pain because that's, what I, that's a, an idol. It's taking something that only a role only God can fill in your life. You build your identity on God. God calls the shots in your life and you turn away from that and all of a sudden something else is having authority in your life, your own distorted, destructive desires. You know, the voice of those abusive or neglectful parents or whatever. It starts, and, and John says, keep yourself from that which might wander, that might cause you to wander from the path. I'll close with this. You know, um, a couple years back, you know, I was in the midst of kind of a crisis. And I was watching a person I loved, you know, make some bad choices. And I was freaking out. And I was wanting to step in and control. And I was feeling anxiety. And I called a dear friend of mine who's a therapist and said, help me out. And we started talking and he said this. He said, listen, Josh, he said, when the cabin pressure drops, when you go through extreme turbulence, when you lose elevation, when the cabin pressure drops and people are freaking out, he says, the first thing you need to do is reach for oxygen. And he says, you need to breathe if you're going to help someone else. And listen, if you are going to be a help to those friends or siblings or parents or children or grandchildren who are wandering off the path, the best thing you can do for them is to reach up and grab, grab the oxygen of the gospel, 
this reality, this truth of of God's love that enables you to be honest and vulnerable and real with your true self and what's really going on below the surface, that allows you in community and with humility to find healing from people, from, from the hurts that you've had around you, you reach down and you breathe in the oxygen of, the, of God's love for you in Jesus, of God's way for you in Christ, of the community that God has brought around you. You lean into that so that you can be of best help to the people around you who are wandering off and so that you yourself don't wander off. And this is where John ends. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I'm going to invite our band to come up now. We're going to close out our service together and this letter together by coming once again to the Lord's table. And in a very real sense, every week when we come again to the Lord's Supper and we take the bread and we take the cup we are reaching up for oxygen. We are reaching up to spiritual nourishment, spiritual healing that comes to us as once again, through the sacrament, God reaffirms his love for us in Jesus. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. He was torn apart so that you can be made whole and healed once again. And so we come back again to this table as we close out this service to say, God, I need this work. I need your your help. I need your love coming into my life again today so that I can go out and be this instrument of your love and spiritual engagement and concern with those around me. You know, as we uh, enter into this practice, just a quick word of instruction. If you didn't receive the Lord's Supper when you walked in, you can go ahead and just lift up your hand and Kathy and Carol uh, will come and they'll make sure that you get the Lord's Supper. And if you are new to this practice, maybe you're new to Christianity and you're like, I don't feel totally comfortable with this. Don't feel any pressure. Uh, You don't need to share in this practice with us. This is the practice Jesus gave to his followers And so we invite you just to pause and engage in some spiritual reflection as we together engage in this practice. But go ahead and prepare those elements and hold on to them. And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. But let's pray. God, we ask that as we turn once again to this table, that you would nourish and sustain us. We pray, oh God, that your presence that meets us in the bread and cup might nourish and strengthen us, might be for us breath and air that reoxygenates those dark places in our heart. God, would you nourish us where we are feeling weak once again with your love? And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.